Welcome to the Bible in Our Culture, an outreach radio ministry of Liberty Remnant Church, where we encourage you to view the culture through the lens of the Holy Bible. Glad to have you with us again on the Bible in Our Culture, where we look at the culture through the lens of the Bible, and we resist the temptation to look at the Bible through the lens of culture. No matter how much worldly pressure we might feel, we will hold fast to the teachings of Scripture. That is how we know who Jesus is. That is how we know our Heavenly Father. And that is how we know how to live in this crazy, stupid, fallen, messed up world. We've been talking about the ministry of Gideon and the great miracles that God has worked through them and how that applies to our culture today. If you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I believe there is a lot to gain from looking at the story of Gideon. The last couple weeks, we talk about how God's people had conformed to the world around them. They began to worship other idols. We're going to see how that is very much like giving in to the temptation of the world and going along with the world system. God chose Gideon to be a deliverer for his people to save Israel out of the oppression of their enemies. As they fell into sin... They became subject to their enemy's oppression as chastening from God so that they would learn to follow his ways and trust in him. Well, Gideon's hiding while trying to thresh wheat, and the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, God is with you, you mighty man of valor, but he has all these objections. He's like, I'm from the weakest tribe. I'm from the weakest clan in that tribe. I'm the least in my father's house. He was hiding in fear and convinced of his inadequacy. Well, that don't matter. Gideon's only real credential is God sent him and God was with him. It seems like he's, the angel of the Lord said that to Gideon over and over. Verse 12, the Lord is with you. Verse 14, have I not sent you? Verse 16, surely I will be with you. This is great news to anybody who humbly follows the Lord and says, I believe God wants to do something powerfully in this generation and in this time. If he did it with Gideon, who felt entirely inadequate, he can do it with you. He can do it with me. We just have to trust and obey. So as we look into the story a little further, I'd like to read a bit from Judges 6, starting verse 25 through 32. It says, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull and the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. So the angel of the Lord revealed himself to him, told him he was going to lead Israel, and then he tells him, Hey, Go take care of that altar of Baal and the wooden image that's at your father's house. Now, verse 26 says, And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. Verse 27, So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it, that was cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar, which had been built. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, 
Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Jerubbabel means contender with Baal, and that was Gideon's new name. So we have some general observations here. This is, this is a really significant story. This act of Gideon's obedience to God is often forgotten because his call by the angel of the Lord and the final battle, which we haven't read about yet, they're so thrilling. These are sensational stories. These make people feel good. How the angel of the Lord called Gideon while he was hiding from the Midianites. What a great story that'll preach. That'll encourage people. And then the victory where he whittled down his army to just 300 guys and they took on five powerful armies that you couldn't even number. That was a pretty thrilling story. But sandwiched in between these two sensational stories is this story about having to contend with Baal at his own father's house. It's camouflaged because the two stories on either side of it are so exciting, but also because it gets personal. He's going to have to deal with idol worship right in his own father's house. I think understanding this story is really significant in understanding Gideon, the book of Judges, and the Bible in general. Before Gideon defeated the Midianites, he had to defeat Baal at home. It's the same thing with all of us. This forgotten story we have to take a look at. I find it interesting that in verse 25, the Lord says, Tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God. And then later on in verse 27, it says, But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. Well, what can we glean from this? I think, first of all, we can observe that even though God himself was directing Gideon to tear down idols, there was still strong resistance. Many people think, well, if God's called me to it, it's going to be super easy. Whatever God calls me to, he's going to make it really easy. There's going to be lots of fanfare along the way. That is not the case in Scripture. And personally, that hasn't been what I've found in my own personal walk with the Lord. Even though God calls you to do stuff, sometimes that stuff ticks people off and there's controversy. So Gideon was in the process of fearing God more than people. When the angel of the Lord revealed himself to Gideon, he was freaked out, thought he was going to die. The angel of the Lord said, nope, you're not going to die. And he kind of re was relieved. He feared God. But now God's asking him to do something that he thinks is going to cost him his life, going to tick off everybody in the city. Gideon feared God enough to obey him, but was still keeping an eye on popular opinion. Maybe there's some wisdom to that. Not that you would let popular opinion dictate what you do, but you might be aware of how to approach things in wisdom, still do what God's called you to do, but try to add some of God's wisdom to it. When Gideon realized that the angel of the Lord was the angel of the Lord, he freaked out, and for good reason, he should fear God. We all should fear God. We all ought to fear God enough to obey him. Don't fear God like a child would fear something and run from him. He can't run from God. As an adult, when we learn to fear something, we, we learn we got to obey. And that's really the case with Gideon and fearing the Lord. He was freaked out at what the townspeople might do to him, so he waited until night to obey God. I find it interesting that God never rebukes Gideon for waiting until night to destroy these idols. So perhaps it was a good fear based on common sense and an intelligent prognostication of risk versus reward. He's thinking, well, I want to obey God. I have to obey God. But if I do it in broad daylight, all these men are going to come out and kill me. They don't want to lose these, all, these idols and what they represent. So he's thinking, well, I could still obey God. 
if I did it at night, I'll miss out on a good night's rest. But if I do it at night, nobody will see. And I might get away with it and get the job done. I think that's kind of the case. There is a use for fear. It keeps us wise. If, if we're on a, a cliff or something, we, we tend to have enough fear to back away and preserve our life. If somebody's attacking us down in the streets of Spokane downtown, we have hopefully a kick of adrenaline because of the fear. There's a healthy fear. Now, most of us, we aren't in dangerous physical risk peril most of the time. In fact, most of us are rarely ever in that type of peril to our physical bodies. So the fear that we meditate on, the fear that plagues us and torments us, usually isn't the reality that, that we're making it out to be. A lot of it has to do with our imagination. Most of our fears have nothing to do with reality. But I hope you have enough fear not to jump into the lion's cage at the zoo. I saw a video of some drunk guy who thought it'd be cute to get down into the, into the den with a bunch of wild animals, a bunch of wild cats, panthers or jaguars or whatever they were, and they played around with them for a little bit, and then they attacked them and killed them, I believe. He didn't have a healthy fear. I think Gideon may have had a little bit of healthy fear here. We don't know that for sure, but as upset as the men of the city were, it sounds like it may have been nearly impossible to tear down the idols in broad daylight. When they found out he did it, they wanted to kill him. You think they would have just let him do it? I think Gideon may have just chose the wisest way to obey God. Notice he didn't let his fear of what the townspeople might do to him cause him to disobey God. He feared God more than men. Now, we don't know. Perhaps if Gideon had torn down the altar during the day, God would have protected him with fireballs from the sky and earthquakes and lightning and thunder. Who knows what could have happened? But the Bible doesn't tell us, so we don't know for sure. What I'm trying to make us aware of is Jesus told us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Matthew 10, 16. So that's something that we all have to live by. In other words, there are tactical ways to skillfully argue and present a defense for the hope that is in you. How about for arguing for the lives of unborn children? As I'm sure you know, thousands of innocent children are being murdered every day in what's called abortion. And if you're interacting with somebody on that issue, and if you simply shout, the Bible says abortion is murder, well, that could do more harm than good. Not because I don't uh, believe that the Bible says abortion is murder. I really believe that. I, that's, that's where I start, because I believe the Bible is true. Part of why we have the show, The Bible, and our culture, is we believe the Bible is true. But if I'm arguing that with a secularist, and I haven't first convinced them that the Bible is true— it could solidify in the minds of a secular audience, well, pro-lifers are intolerant religious extremists trying to oppress women. That's the narrative they heard. They hear it all the time. So if I were to say something that would fuel that belief, well, they'll just not listen to me and dismiss everything I have to say. If, on the other hand, I can make an objective view about why abortion is murdering an innocent human person, then I think people will begin to see, oh, maybe there's some truth to this Christianity thing. I think that's possible. I think we can use objective material and be able to make a convincing argument of why the unborn child is a human person and not just have to go immediately to, well, the Bible says so. The Bible does say so, but that's not going to win anybody. That's not going to make a good defense. So we don't indulge ourselves when it comes to our frustrations with how the world sees things. Gideon didn't do that. We see a lot of people today 
both on the right and the left, that like to indulge their frustrations when they interact with people about current day issues. I've mentioned on the show in the past that at Spokane City Hall, I came to share a public forum to the city council about some things dear to my heart and dear to God's heart. And Marxists just violently, not just not violently, but aggressively took over City Hall. Now, I don't think that helped their case. I think a more respectful approach would do well. So it's the same with us. Let's understand human nature and let's be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I find it really interesting and helpful to point out Gideon was fierce towards the idols and the religious icons at his father's house, but he was not that way towards the people who were practicing this false religion. Oh, it was a very damaging false religion. It brought God's judgment on Israel. It brought the Midianites and the Amalekites and the armies of the east to come and oppress God's people. Gideon was, I'm sure, frustrated, but he didn't go and take out his frustration on his fellow Israelites who were indulging that religion. But he was very aggressive towards the idols themselves and towards the ideology. I think it's too important. I, I saw a clip of a pastor making very clear what I think is really simple. We cannot, if we're going to be Bible believers, we cannot affirm a homosexual lifestyle. Similarly, if we're Bible believers, we cannot hate the homosexual. We still love them. Their narrative is if you don't affirm the way I live, if you don't affirm my sin, then you must hate me. And yes, you hate me, so I'm going to package you and frame you as a hater because you won't affirm my lifestyle. Interestingly, the Bible gives us neither the choice, neither the opportunity to hate, and neither the opportunity to affirm homosexuality. We've, we've got to understand that. We've got to make a convincing case and be aware of what's happening in the culture and not just simply venting our frustrations. Verse 25 of Judges 6 it says, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull and the second bull of seven years old and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that's beside it. There were a lot of Baals or Baals, I think is how you're technically supposed to say it. And there was this Asherah. I believe they were demonic beings. They were evil forces that had revealed themselves to the Canaanites as gods. And they worshipped them. And they afflicted the devil's own vice on them. And that's what the devil's been doing uh, since the Garden of Eden. We're going to talk more about that in a moment, but let's take a quick break. Two years ago, Liberty Remnant Church was founded in Spokane by a group of committed Christ followers who, believing God, sought to build a distinct local church for His glory. LRC is a simple, relational, biblical church that holds firm to the basic tenets of biblical Christianity. We believe we are to represent Christ's love, power, and wisdom in every and any facet of society. Perhaps you've seen our pastor, Jay McPherson, or others from Liberty Remnant Church, either standing up at Spokane City Hall or at a local school board meeting in the area. We believe we are called to be salt and light as we bring people to new life in Christ. If you are looking for a local church or know someone who is, please consider what God is doing at Liberty Remnant Church. We meet every Sunday 
at the Oakwood Inn, 7919 North Division at 10 a.m. For more information or to contact our pastor, please check out our website at libertyremnantchurch.org. Once again, that's libertyremnantchurch.org. And welcome back to the Bible and our culture. So let's look at the idols here. The, the Baals were the male gods of fertility. And this promised three types of benefits. For one, lots of sex, and we're talking about fertility. Also material prosperity. Those things were connected in the minds of the people of that day. They're kind of looked on as the opposite today with Planned Parenthood and abortion. But the idea was if you were going to be materially prosperous, you had to have a lot of livestock. And you had to hope that those livestock reproduced so that you could be wealthy. And in a similar way, if you had a lot of crops, your your gardens, your vineyards, your olive trees, you had to hope that they were really fruitful as well. And so how are humans fruitful? Humans are fruitful when they reproduce. You know? and, and so sex was a big part of the gods of the Baals and the Asherah. Now with material prosperity and with indulging in sexual gratification, there was this status too that, hey, I'm important because I got a lot of stuff and, and I'm uh, enjoying sexual gratification. Which to me makes a lot more sense when I see idol worship in the Bible. When I was a kid, I'd hear how the children of Israel fell into idolatry. And I'm like, what? Why? That doesn't make any sense to me. Come on, I'm not going to want to bow down to a statue. That doesn't sound like fun. That sounds like detention. But it wasn't that they got any gratification with bowing down to statues. The idea was, is the, the Baals, the, god, the male god of fertility, promised lots of sex, and the practice of religion in, involved sex, and there was material prosperity as a result. They were promising everything that today's temptations want to promise. The spirit of today's age was very similar, almost identical, to the spirit in that age, and that they were promising the same things and trying to tempt us in the same way. So the gods of the Baals were terrible. How about this Asherah? What kind of god is the Asherah? Well, it's a goddess. It's a female goddess of fertility. So it's basically the same thing as Baal. It promised sex, material prosperity, and status. But it also had this warm, lovey feeling that was sort of like, peace, bro. Love, not war, man. It was kind of a hippie peace, where if, if you really worship the god of Asherah and she was Please, there'd be this warm, lovey feeling that would, would chase away war. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Now, the New King James didn't call this Asherah pole an uh, Asherah pole. It, it called it a wooden image. So what is an Asherah pole? Well, this is where it gets a little uh, uncomfortable and probably un inappropriate for young listeners. So if you have children... We shouldn't really talk about it in front of children. They're not ready for it yet. But it is in the Bible. And we as adults living in a sex-saturated culture, we have to be clear. We understand what is happening in the Bible. Why were there these Asherah poles? And why were there these idol worship? What was really going on? Well, idol worship was in part sex worship with sexual acts. Again, as I mentioned earlier, with the sexual acts would hopefully become... Uh, a greater economic benefit as well. Now you kind of see why the men of the city were so upset when they saw that their altar to Baal and the Asherah pole were torn down. 
It basically took away their ability to watch sexuality because there were temple prostitutes in the Bible days and shrine prostitutes. They were the evangelists for their gods. We see it all throughout Scripture. There was this idea that we could allure people into our idol worship if we have prostitutes that would come and expose themselves, perhaps, and promise sexual acts, and let's all dance, let's all orgy, we'll, we'll have an uh, exciting time indulging our flesh as we worship the Baals and the Asherah. So the Asherah pole was this, a hollowed-out log that they erected and would have it planted there up and down. That's why the King James calls it a grove, because they thought they were planting trees. It wasn't really a tree. It was a hollowed-out log, and they would build a fire and burn incense at the base of the log, kind of at the trunk, and then the, the smoke and the incense would be offered up to the top of this giant pole in the sky. And the idea was, this is really going to please and pleasure the goddess Asherah, and she's going to benefit us with prosperity and materials and, and peace, man. Do you see the picture there? It's kind of obscene. But that's what was going on when you, every time you see an Asherah pole, and only the NIV calls it an Asherah pole that I'm aware of. Other calls it Asherah, and like I said, the New King James calls it a wooden image, which it was made out of wood. An image of what? Well, we don't want to talk about that. And the King James, as sincere as the King James translators may have been, they just didn't know what they were, they were doing to translate this Asherah. They translated it as a grove when actually it was a, a giant log in the sky that would, uh, they would use in their worship services to have this big sexual orgy, all this dancing, all this who knows what, in order to please the goddess Asherah. So you can see why there was a temptation to fall into idol worship. This sexualized aspect of idol worship may have been better left unsaid throughout much of American history until more recently. My idea of the 1950s is the situational comedy, Leave it to Beaver. And in on Leave it to Beaver, Wally and the Beave and their parents, Ward and June, always went to church on Sunday. They got dressed up in their fanciest clothes. All the boys wore suit and tie and they went to church every Sunday. And it, and they wouldn't even let you see the bathroom because it would be obscene if you saw a toilet on TV. I mean, that's how it was back in the, the mid-50s. So I don't know that you want to teach Sunday school if you want to talk about what an Asherah pole and the altars of Baal really were and what they really did. I don't think it'd be appropriate. When I went to Bible college, nobody ever taught me this. I had to hear this from other pastors that did their research that were willing to take on this sexualized spirit that we're up against today. Even now, in our sex-saturated culture, it doesn't fit a lot of the pious religious facades that most of us are used to when we go to church. In organized religion, quote-unquote, we expect a, a religious facades and things to be proper and dignified, but that is not the reality of the world we live in. So instead of covering up the realities of today's culture with a sweet by-and-by, I feel it's important we deal with the nasty now-and-now Sexual idolatry. It's the same thing we see in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Well, that's certainly true. So there's two extremes here. I think a lot of people would say, Wow, 
I'm so glad we don't have temple prostitutes today like the Gentiles did in Bible days. You know what? I think that's naive. We have it today as well. It's just in a little bit different package according to secularism instead of according to Baal and Asherah worship. The other extreme would be somebody that says, well, hey, you know, we get a pass regarding sexual sin because technology has brought so much sexual temptation, no other culture has had to deal with it. And we all have a warehouses of porn in our pocket if we have a smartphone and access to the internet. You know, there's a lot more sexual temptation. Even you try and watch a, a clean television show or watch sports or something, the commercials can be defiling. And technology has brought with it visual images of sex, visual image of sexuality that would otherwise be deemed inappropriate throughout most of American history. So that's naive as well. It hasn't been just now that we faced sexual temptation to the level that we have. I believe back in Bible days, they, they had it just as much. There's nothing new under the sun. That which has been is what will be, and what we see is what's already happened. So ignorance has led to the naivety and permissiveness of these extremes. In other words, we don't know what we're reading when we read the Bible and we talk about idol worship and shrine prostitutes and temple prostitutes and Baal and Asherah. We just zip by it and think we know enough. We don't. And so I'm trying to raise your awareness that when Gideon went to tear down the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole in his father's house, he was taking on uh, some really entrenched sin. So we'll talk about it more next week. But as we look at the story of Gideon and we see his great success, we see the miracles work through him, we have to understand he was really prepared to take on the gods of the day, which are very similar to the gods of our day. He took, a, took them on very boldly. Baals and the Asherah, they were gods of sex, material prosperity, and status. I trust that you can go before God and say, Lord, give me strength and grace to take on these idols in our culture that I could bring revival and reform to my nation, just as Gideon did to his. Well, thank you for being with us. Come back next week at this same time. You can find older episodes of the Bible and our culture on podcasts, wherever you find podcasts, or at the website of our sponsor, Liberty Remnant Church. We have a website, libertyremnantchurch.org, where you'll be able to find out more information about me and our local church. If you're in the Spokane area, we'd like to have you come visit if you're looking for a home church, or should be. And you can also contact me at office at libertyremnantchurch.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Bible in Our Culture, an outreach radio ministry of Liberty Remnant Church. If you would like to help support this ministry, you can go to our website, libertyremnantchurch.org backslash give and select radio ministry. See you next week at this same time.